get even halfway through the book of Deuteronomy or not during this feast? Probably not. But uh, let's make as much progress we can, and we can wrap the rest of it up in the next few weeks, perhaps. <coughs> he says, Therefore, you shall love the Eternal your God, and keep his charge, and his statutes, and his judgments, and his commandments always. That is, until they're done away. You know what I mean. And know you this day, for I speak not with your children which have not known, and which have not seen the chastisement of the Eternal your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his stretched out arm, and his miracles, and his acts which he did in the midst of Egypt, and the Pharaoh the king of Egypt, and into all his land. And what he did to the army of Mitzrayim, unto their horses, to their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea to overflow them as they pursued after you, and how the Eternal has destroyed them to this day. And what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place. And what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, who sinned in front of the temple, the sons of Reuben, how the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up, and their households and their tents and all the substance that was in their possession in the midst of all Israel. But your eyes have seen all the great acts of the Eternal which he did. Therefore shall you keep all the commandments which I command you this day, that you may be strong and go in and possess the land where you go to possess it. So he recounts very quickly God's majesty and great miracles to preserve them, his singular acts of uh, dealing with rebellion, he only is interested in people who are cooperative and helpful and obedient. So he did all kinds of things to encourage them toward that end, but then when they rebelled against what he was doing and the leaders that he had set, they were destroyed. So Moses wants them to remember the various elements of what had occurred so they might get a full picture of how God reacts, what he does, how his mind works. Verse 9, And that you may prolong your days in the land which the Eternal swore to you, to your fathers, to give them to their seed, a land that flows with milk and honey. Now there's a, a very important lesson there for you and me to get, that our days be prolonged upon the earth. Now, it doesn't matter really in the long run, does it, whether you live 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years on this earth? Because no matter what, it is appointed to all once to die. So when you're dead, all memory is forgotten. You have no memory. The dead know nothing. So it's all over. It's done. You... Each of you have memories, some wonderful memories of the past, some abhorrent memories of the past. You have experiences that you could sit and tell people about, things that you have done or seen or heard that maybe have inspired you, and yet they're just your memory bank. And when it's gone, you're gone. So what good did it do? There's nothing lasting. 
But as Solomon put it in Ecclesiastes, it's all vanity. I mean, it just, it goes. I look it round at things I've done. I have hunting trophies from different places in the world and around the country here. And uh, when I die, they would mean nothing to no one. What's all that hair and fur? Get it out of here. You know, who wants that? It'll mean nothing. When my memory of those events, where I was, how it happened, all the events that occurred, I'm the only one that knows. And when I'm gone, that memory is gone. Just a trivial little example. So, we're here temporarily. And it means nothing unless our days can be prolonged. So, we're here not seeking this life and just the quality of it and how long we can hang on and make it work. And we have a lot of people in this world that are coming down to the last days, weeks, years of their lives as this life begins to fold up and wrinkle up and fall toward the ground. And their goal is to prolong this physical life as long as humanly possible. It doesn't matter whether it's quality of life, they just don't want to die. They want to spend everything they have trying to stay alive for another week, another month, maybe another year. It's all they have. Now some, I understand, finally get to the point, let me die already. I've had enough. So you can reach that point, but we don't go there very quickly. We want to live. God has offered you and me an opportunity to prolong our life on this earth throughout all eternity. We're not going to heaven. We're going to reign on the earth a thousand years. But the headquarters of the universe is going to be set up right here in this area. And we will be part of it as the bride of Christ forevermore. Now that's what you mean when you say prolong your life on the earth. Fear not he who is able to kill the body, but he who is able to kill body and soul. We're not to fear man and what he might do to us. All they can do, after all, is just remove your life. Some of us don't have that much left anyhow. Big deal. But I still don't cozy up to the idea of having them come snuff it out. You know what I mean? I'd kind of like to stick around. I don't want to. I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go tonight. The old song. We have opportunity to serve God, keep His commandments, and have our life prolonged forevermore. And even if there's a short intermission, to be resurrected to eternal life. That intermission, to some, might seem like a long time. But if you're dead, you don't know it's going by. And Abraham. When he is resurrected, it will have only been a split second. Went into unconsciousness, and his next conscious thought is, I'm alive. I'm sure Moses wanted to go into that physical promised land. He talked about it enough. But he went up on the mountain to die instead. And now his next moment of consciousness will be in the kingdom of God. So, 
those who are left behind miss someone over a period of years until they die, and as Ecclesiastes says, you, you're not remembered. It's, you, you just go away. Now, a few names that God has preserved we can remember, or a few that history has preserved around we might remember. But generally, you know, one generation later, aunts, uncles, cousins, they're forgotten. They're just gone. So then we dive through the family Bible or whatever trying to see who just two generations back were. It's pretty futile. Pretty short, doesn't mean much, unless it has eternal meaning. So, let's keep the commandments and prolong our days in a land flowing with milk and honey. It's got to be a pretty productive, verdant land to flow with milk and honey, doesn't it? Cows have to eat. Cows have to live. They have to have calves in order for us to have milk. Bees have to pollinate lots and lots and lots of plants in order to have honey. Barren deserts do not produce much honey, and they do not produce much milk. God said the promised land would be flowing with milk and honey. You wonder where that is? Well, that's either Wisconsin or other places. There are dairies and herds of milk cows all over this country. There are several square miles of nothing but dairies right down in the L.A. Basin. Still... And yet, and they get hay from where? Utah, Montana, Colorado. This land produces so much that they can have thousands upon thousands of animals right there in the L.A. Basin and have food from the promised land brought in. Can't do that over there in Israel. Why do I keep coming back to that? There are just so many little things through here over and over and over again to tell you it can't be in a barren, desolate place such as that. It has to be a land that God has blessed. He goes on to talk about it here. For the land where you go in to possess it is not as the land of Mitzrayim from where you came out, where you sowed your seed and watered it with your foot. Watered it with your foot through irrigation means. You had to walk around on your feet and move the dirt and get water down the channels because there wasn't much water and you had to artificially water. Now, we do a lot of that in America today, but it isn't because of lack of water throughout the country. Most of the country is very well watered. You watered it with your foot as a garden of herbs, like a little family garden, in other words. Not big agricultural productivity that they would have in the promised land to come. But the land where you go to possess it is a land of hills and valleys and drinks water of the rain of heaven. You don't have to get it there by foot. You don't have to carry it there to water your little herb garden to try to have cement or something green. It'll be well watered with rain. A land which the eternal your God cares for. The eyes of the eternal your God are always upon it, from the beginning of the year even to the end of the year. So this land is set aside as something special that has the attention of God. 
I don't know whether we stole it from this verse or not, but often people refer to the land where they come from as God's country. Doesn't matter where it is, it's to them, that's what it is, because we have an empirical self, and wherever we're from, God must have been there. You know? But nonetheless, this country has been blessed above all countries on earth by Almighty God, and he has looked upon it and taken care of it. It is us that have despoiled and polluted it. It is getting less and less rain all the time. We're having less and less productivity because of sin. But it didn't start out that way. Bad farming practices is what has made a lot of the desert country that is in the Middle West today. Parts of Texas and Kansas and Nebraska and so on. Because when the buffalo were roaming there, there was grass this high over most of that country. And then we came in and plowed up the whole thing and let the dust blow and had the dust bowl and all that. And we've destroyed the soil with our chemicals and so on. But it wasn't that way. Right here, where this building is, a hundred, hundred and twenty-five years ago, had grass up to the cow's belly. It was not desert. Old-timers can tell you of that. Whereas old men today were little children, or their fathers told them. It became deserty because of overgrazing. The grass was killed off and given over to sage and rabbit brush and that type of thing. It doesn't receive as much moisture as it once did either. Because once desertification starts, it expands. The Sahara Desert is growing, last I heard, about a hundred miles a year. So, it disperses clouds. It causes rain not to come. So we look today and say, well, some parts of this country don't seem so blessed. Well, even the unblessed so-called areas used to be better than they are today. And it shall come to pass, verse 13, if you shall hearken diligently to my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the eternal your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, every part of your being, every nerve, that I will give you the rain of your land in his due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your corn and your wine and your oil. Let's ask ourselves, if you were to do a poll or examine the people across America today, would you say, <clears throat> in all fairness and honesty, that the people of this land, the great and vast majority of them, love God and serve Him with all their heart and all their soul? Their whole being is dedicated to the God in heaven. If it wasn't so sad, it would almost be laughable. Why would you conduct such a, a poll? That's ridiculous. We serve ourselves. For the most part, we do not serve God. And he is not in the thoughts and consciousness of the most Americans. 
Hopefully he is more so with us than he is with them, and I think he is. But when we see the whole land beginning to suffer more and more, we have to realize that this is coming down on America today because of our disobedience. Verse 15, And I will send grass in your fields for your cattle, that they may eat and be full. Take heed to yourselves, that your heart be not deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Eternal's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven, that there be no rain, that the land yield not her fruit, unless you perish quickly from off the good land which the Eternal gives you. We're at that point of perishing pretty quickly now off this land that we have had possession of during the last several hundred years. Therefore shall you lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul, and bind them for a sign upon your hand, that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. Focus on. Blinders on. So that you don't see from side to side and wander from side to side, but you go straight forward on the goal of serving God with all the heart. And you shall teach them your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house, around your table, in the living room, when they come in and bound onto your bed and pile up for family time, whatever. And when you walk by the way, as you go about life and business, work and play, you're always teaching God's way, his precepts, the best way to do this and the best way to do that that would please God. When you lie down and when you rise up, morning, noon, and night, in other words, 24 sevens, the way of God needs to be before our eyes and in our consciousness. Because if you love him with all your heart and with all your soul and put him ahead of everything else, then that needs to be there. Now, I'm not saying we ought to be daydreaming, going down, trying to envision God as we're driving a car and our eyes, you know, But always, in your mind, how would God react to that jerk that just cut me off? How did I react? How would God react to what is going on around me? What would his emotion be? So you always, subconsciously or consciously, because of training of your mind, are aware of doing things God's way, not your way. And we all too often find ourselves reacting quite humanly and quite carnally and quite selfishly, do we not? Of course we do. We're still human. But we need to be working on those reactions. Oh, did I do that again? Yeah, same as five minutes before. Yes, you did. But I need to work on changing that reaction, that attitude, We shouldn't be moody, for instance. What is moody? Let's don't go into all the psychological stuff, but we need to be thinking of the things of God and being uplifted by his way of life 
so we don't have time to settle back into poor little me, or I'm worried about me, or why doesn't anybody love me, or or all the little things for the world's smallest violin to play about. We need to adjust our moods, is what I'm trying to say. The Spirit of God is love and joy and peace and gladness, happiness, and that's what we need to work toward. Now, will we all fall short of that? Every day. Every day we will. Now, am I saying everybody ought to just forget all trouble all around them and just put on rose-colored glasses and just kind of skip merrily through life and never see problems? No. It's not what I mean at all. But we have to adjust our attitudes. It's a constant thing with our little children. They get into angry, uh, selfish, cantankerous moods, and it is the job of the parent to adjust that mode, attitude adjustment hour, so that that child gets rid of his frustration and his anger and selfishness and becomes sweet and loving and kind and gentle and cooperative. We have to start that when they're just little children, adjusting their attitudes. Is it a spirit of peace, spirit of cooperation and sharing, or is it rampant selfishness? And that attitude must be changed. How do you expect a little child whose attitude you do not adjust, but let him get away with all his arrogant selfishness, to be a loving, sharing, giving adult when he's never experienced such a thing as a child. He's been allowed to be angry, to be bitter, to be vengeful, spiteful, mean, nasty, disrespectful. You're doing that child a great disservice if you allow that because he's going to face a life of difficulty trying to control his moods and attitudes. It takes a lot of work with our children to get them into the right spirit and attitude. Parenting is a full-time job because it needs constant adjustments. We've all chastened our children and had them just get stubborn or mad angry with us. Well, I smacked them, so I'm done. No, you're not. You are not done until that child is humble and meek and cooperative and kind and gentle and sharing and loving. And when you accomplish that, then you have properly chastened your child. But I've heard many people over the years say, well, I smacked him around a little. I spanked his behind. Didn't do a bit of good. No, probably not, because you didn't follow through and finish the job. When you're done, if it's a little child, he'll be sitting in your lap, hugging you and sobbing his bad attitude away and loving once again. Sometimes with teenagers, it takes more than a spanking. Uh, 
let's not even go there. Let's keep continue with Deuteronomy. But it's all about attitude and us adjusting our attitudes. Why do we as adults have trouble with our attitudes? Because our parents didn't make us get rid of bad ones and transform into children with good ones. And since, and since we have no practice, or very little, then when we're adults, we have an uphill battle to fight. You're not correcting for the infraction, you're also correcting the attitude. Yeah, you can say, well, I smacked them around for that infraction, I took privileges away. But if their attitude is the same, you haven't gained a thing. They just get more intransigent, more stubborn, unless the attitude changes. And that's why God chastens you and me until we be humble, obedient, meek, and say, thank you, Father, for the correction I needed so I can be more like you. You want God's heavy hand of chastening off your neck? Change your attitude. He's more interested in your attitude than anything else. But when he says, with all your heart and all your soul, and lay these words in your heart and in your soul, he means your innermost being, where you live, belongs to God, not to you. And make sure that your children learn the same thing. Verse 20, And you shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates, that your days may be multiplied in the days of your children in the land which the Eternal swore to your fathers to give them as the days of heaven upon the earth. If we're serving God with all our heart, He will bless us, He will protect us, He will heal us. Our days will be longer and they will be better. You do need to see God in your life. It is not self-righteous to work at recognizing how God is working with you and why you are going through what you are going through, because you might better understand what to do then to resolve conflicts and difficulty and issues between you and God. And if your reactions to God get better, they're also going to get better to people because you begin to react more like God reacts. <laughs> Verse 22, For if you shall diligently keep all these commandments which I command you to do them, to love the Eternal your God, to walk in all his ways, and to cleave to him, then will the Eternal drive out all these nations that come before you, and you shall possess greater nations and mightier than yourselves. Notice how often he repeats the same thing over and over about loving God and serving Him and keeping His commandments. And then he'll say, and then God will do this. And if you'll, if you'll do this, then God will do this. So it all is contingent upon us keeping God's ways, His laws, his statutes, and that will lead to blessing. We did not cleave to God in Worldwide Church of God with all our heart and with all our soul. And that was not good enough for God, so he spewed us out. And now he's trying to, through this chastening, through these trials and troubles, 
get us to repair our hearts and souls and turn them to Him. And when this is accomplished, He's going to bless us again. And He intends to do it. So do you understand what that means? <laughs> what it means is, trials, troubles, and tribulations will get harder and closer together until he has our hearts and souls. See, he has said he'll never leave nor forsake us, right? Therefore, if we're falling short of the mark, if he loves us and is not going to forsake us, he has to do something about it. And all he can do is put on more pressure. So once in a while we say, well, why are we having so much trouble? Why do we have so many trials? Why aren't things better for us? Well, duh. He does not have our entire heart and soul yet. And time is getting shorter. And therefore it must become more aggressive, more difficult. Because we're tried in the fire. And just a little flick of a lighter isn't enough fire to get us to change. So it has to get hotter, heavier, and longer. And then maybe it will get our attention. But God isn't going to give up on you and me. You understand that? You're in. Can't get out. You've committed yourself. You're either going to go into the lake of fire, or you're going to go to meet Christ in the air and come back and rule on the earth. There's no way out for us who are baptized, who have put ourselves into God's hands and committed to his way of life. And he doesn't want to lose any one of us. Not even you. Not even me. So he will do what is necessary to get us there. Just as the parent has to keep after the child until the attitude is properly adjusted. And he clings to mom or dad in love and sobbing and tears and smiles. And you can say to each other, I love you. Then's when it's over. Until the next episode. But that is what God does with us. And that's what he expects us to do with our children. Don't let them get away with it. What if God let us get away with it, brethren? We'd go right into the tribulation with everybody else. So he put the crunch on the church so that we wouldn't go the way of the world and go into the tribulation with the world. And he tells us, pray that you'd be accounted worthy to escape all these things. So it's really up to us to a certain point. But once he puts his money down on you, he doesn't want to lose it. Remember the parable? I gave you this much. I gave you this much. Why didn't you increase it? Once he puts his money on us, he expects us to produce. You're pretty upset if you go to the track and put money on a horse and he takes the day off. 
God's not going to let us take the day off. He'll stay after us because he wants us there. And he won't give up. So whatever pressure we have to have is what we're going to get to get us where he wants us to be. So the sooner we yield, the sooner we give in, the sooner we're willing to change our attitudes, the quicker the cloud will be lifted. He says it over and over here. Uh, verse 23, Then will the Eternal drive out all these nations from before you, and, shall, and you shall possess greater nations and mightier than yourselves. Something that could not have been accomplished because they are mightier and greater than you will be done because God intervened. Now they ask once in a while, like a baseball or a football team, who on this team, if you were going into a dark alley some night outside the bar, who on this team would you want with you? So they'll pick out the biggest, strongest, meanest guy there and say, that's the one I want with me. Do the same. Who do you want with you when the chips are down and the enemies come? I want God. I'm picking God. You can't do any better than that. None of us here can do what he can do. Verse 24, Every place whereon the soles of your feet shall tread shall be yours. From the wilderness and Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, perhaps the Atlantic, even to the uttermost sea, the Pacific, shall your coast be. Do we have that from sea to shining sea? Now, if Israel in the Middle East is who, is who he's speaking of here, you got a Mediterranean Sea, how yeah, they get there, it's only about 40 miles from Jerusalem or so. But then, if you go the other direction, you cross an awful lot of desert to get to the other sea. And you know what? They don't even come near going across Jordan and Saudi Arabia and all that to get to the other sea. So what's this talking about? If he was referring to them in that land, then today, in the end time, that's what he's ultimately pointing to here, they should have from sea to sea. And they don't. We do. The Atlantic was often called the Euphrates by the ancients. And we have from it to the other sea. There shall no man be able to stand before you. For the eternal your God shall lay the fear of you and the dread of you upon all the land that you shall tread upon, as he has said to you. Who in the world has been that? The fear of America has been instilled in most countries or all countries around the world. Even Russia at her height was afraid of us. How many people are afraid of Israel in the Middle East? Yeah, maybe a few Palestinians and Leb people from Lebanon, maybe. Not much more are truly afraid of them. We became the greatest military might that the earth has ever known. And incidentally, we'll ever know. Well, maybe the beast will for a little while be greater in that sense. The whole world will fear it and worship it. 
but the armies of men are going to go away. No man would be able to stand before you. Even Germany in World War II. Every land was not afraid to stand before them. We weren't, were we? No. We went over there and with God's help, defeated them. Happened. We survived, and the dread of us has spread around the world. I'm not saying it's righteous. I'm not saying we should have done what we did. Don't get me wrong. But that fear and that dread of this military might is there, whether we're righteous or unrighteous. That's the point. 26, Behold, I set before you, you this day a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey the commandments of the eternal your God, which I command you this day. And a curse if you will not obey the commandments of the eternal your God, but turn aside out of the way which I command you this day to go after other gods which you have not known. And he repeats this stuff over and over. Why? Because Israel has gone through cycle of sin and repentance over and over and over again. And we are in the cycle now of sin and far short of repentance. And Jeremiah tells us we will not repent as a nation and even instruct us not to pray for this nation. Forget it. You're wasting your breath going to God about praying for America. God bless America, we say. Why on earth would God bless America? We kill our babies, we murder, we steal, we do everything contrary to God's way, and even have kicked him out of our schools and churches and politics and lives. God bless America, you've got to be kidding. I can't sing that song. There's nothing here to bless anymore. God caused Israel or America to repent so he can bless it again. I'm not being unpatriotic and saying I can't sing God bless America. I'm being a realist. There's nothing left to bless, thank you. Repent. Then ask God's blessing. God does not bless disobedience and sin. Sorry. Verse 29, It shall come to pass when the eternal your God has brought you into the land where you go to possess it, that you shall put the blessing upon Mount Gerizim and the curse upon Mount Ebal. Are they not on the other side Jordan, by the way where the sun goes down, in the land of the Canaanites, which dwell in the Champagne over against Gilgal and besides the plains of Moreh? For you shall pass over Jordan to go and to possess the land which eternal your God gives you, and you shall possess it and dwell therein, and you shall observe to do all the statutes and judgments which I set before you this day. You know, Moses, in a way, kind of reminds me of Herbert Armstrong here. He knew he was going to die, and he was so deeply concerned that the church would go into decline and death, that it was off the track after his death. And he was doing all he could to try to help us see where we were and what we needed to do. And we didn't get the point. 
And Moses knew Israel and had a lot of experience with them. He knew where they were headed. And he was repeating these things over and over again. Would you please just listen? I'm going to die. And you're about to destroy yourselves again, even after God puts you there. I know you're going to go into sin and degradation and idol worship. And as soon as Joshua died, they did. He knew what he was talking about. All these things were written for the us upon whom the ends of the world have come. That we might truly look into our hearts and our minds and strip away the deception, self-deception, look at ourselves honestly, and see what part of us doesn't look like God, and start changing that. Because we're supposed to look like Christ. He is the example. I don't mean you need to change your nose and your ears. But his attitudes, his spirit the looks on his face, his reactions to others. We have to come to react and be like him in our attitudes. Yes, he had gladness, he had joy. He was also a man of sorrows. It doesn't mean we just, just need to be happy, happy, joy, joy all the time. Because look at what we see around us and how the world is going into total pollution. And it's a sorrowful thing. But we can feel badly about those things and try to be changing ourselves to be part of the solution when Christ returns, not just woe is me because of the conditions I'm in, but woe is the world, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So it's God-focused even his sorrow was not for himself. His sorrow was for those he saw suffering from sin. Chapter 12. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall observe to do in the land, which the eternal God of your fathers gives you to possess it, all the days that you live upon the earth. He's been talking about attitude up to this point, and our acceptance of God's way, and our heart being in it. Now he's going to begin to give us specifics about how we do that, about the way of God, and what his laws really are. You shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which you shall possess serve their gods, upon the high mountains, and upon the hills, under, under, and under every green tree. We can't do it today, but when Christ returns and we are given the power there will not be a Catholic church anywhere. There will not be crucifixes on headstones. There will not be steeples on Protestant churches. There will be no Christmas trees and Valentines and Easter eggs. They will all be destroyed. Every vestige of the way of Satan and Nimrod and Semiramis and paganism will be taken out of the land and will have the power to do it. They were going to take over physically, and they were physically to do these things. We'll be given the same power. 
You shall overthrow their altars, and break their pillars, and burn their graves with fire, and you shall hew down the graven images of their gods, and destroy the names of them out of that place. You shall not do so unto the eternal your God. You won't destroy all the vestiges and remembrances of God, but of the things that are anti-God. But unto the place which the eternal your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even to his habitation shall you seek, and there shall you come. Now, there are many scriptures which say that Jerusalem was that spot. I won't go there for sake of time. We've done that before. That's where he placed his name. We were a little off when we decided, even in the church, that we could place his name wherever we wished to place it. God placed his name on Jerusalem, ultimately and totally. And that is the place where he will dwell, and that is where all peoples will come to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, is at that Jerusalem. Very few people on earth even know what continent it's on today, much less where on the continent. We're blessed. Six, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, and your tithes, and heave offerings of your hand, and your vows, and your freewill offerings, and the firstlings of your herds and your flocks. And there you shall eat before the eternal your God, and you shall rejoice in all that you put your hand to, you and your households, when the eternal your God has blessed you. You shall not do after all the things that we do here this day, Every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes. Israel had gotten to the point they weren't going to listen to anyone. No one is going to tell me what to do. We don't need leaders. We don't need government. We don't need anybody in charge. It was basically anti-God. Every man doing that which was right in his own eyes. And Moses says, that's just not the way to be. It's not the way to be. He had tried to show them that with the sons of Eli, of Korah, of Baal, and various other ones, or Balaam. And they didn't get the point. They still wanted to do what they wanted to do. And that came again during the period of the judges in Israel, <clears throat> after the kingships, when there wasn't a man strong enough to lead Israel. Wound up with a woman, Deborah because there wasn't a man who had more capacity, more ability, more conviction and commitment and leadership than she did. It wasn't a good thing. It's just all there was. There wasn't a man-child left who had the power to be a leader. Isaiah 58, two, I mean 52, says it's going to be the same way here at the end of the church. No man among all her sons has a capacity to capture the heart, the mind, the attention of the whole church and lead it. There's no one. And there won't be anyone. Even the two witnesses, given great power and great understanding from God, are only going to draw the attention of 10%. That's how bad this nation and the church have gotten.
Verse 9, For you are not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance which eternal your God gives you. But when you go over Jordan and dwell in the land which eternal your God gives you to inherit when he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety, then there shall be a place which eternal your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. There shall you bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and the heave offering of your hand, and all your choice vows which you vow to be eternal. I have speculated and sometimes allowed that we're outside these mountains even that are named, the Canaan Mountains right here in front of us. They're between us and Zion. And is it possible that the Virgin River is the original Jordan? Runs east, runs basically north and south, as the Bible says the Jordan would. And will God keep us this side Jordan until the gathering come and the leadership is in place and then we will cross over to the north and west and to where the original Zion and Jerusalem were. We can visit there, but we don't possess it. The U.S. government does, or the Chinese by now, whoever. But that'll change. I've got a feeling that one could be the Jordan. It was close enough to Jerusalem, they could walk there, they could baptize there, but it was removed far enough that it wasn't just, you know, across the street. Uh, and it runs the right direction. Just makes me wonder. Comes right out of the rock. Thirteen, take heed to yourself that you offer not your burnt offering in every place that you see. Just wherever you want to go. I think I'll have the feast over here. I think I'll conduct the feast over there. I'll go to Washington. I'll go to Florida. I'll go to Alabama. I'll go to Sri Lanka. You know, I can't do that, brethren. We're commanded not to do that. Any place you'd see that you like. But in the place which eternal shall choose in one of your tribes, there shall you offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. Notwithstanding, you may kill and eat flesh in all your gates, whatsoever your soul desires, according to the blessing of the eternal your God which he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat thereof, as of the roebuck and as of the heart. Wild animals, uh, God approves hunting here. Uh, we can harvest deer, elk, antelope, whatever, moose, depending on the circumstance, and eat of those things. And it doesn't matter whether the person is in or out, clean or unclean. They can eat of those things. God has put them here for everyone's use. Of course, we can only eat the clean. That's clear from other scriptures. Only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it upon the earth as water. The life is in the blood, and we have to show respect to life. I heard the other day, it was on the news, somebody somewhere, I guess, I don't know just where, Wisconsin or Minnesota or somewhere, had just shot five moose and left them away. Didn't even try to harvest them or eat them or anything else. Just joy killing, if there's any joy in that. Vanity, pride, showing off, I don't know why. Crazy. But they weren't respecting the life of those animals. They're God's creatures that he made. And even though we may kill them and eat them, 
We need to respect the life and the creation from God that was there. Pour the blood on the ground. It's, in that sense, kind of maybe as an offering to God who created that life. You may not eat within your gates the tithe of your corn, of your wine, nor all of the firstlings of your herds, or of your flock, nor any of the vows which you vowed, nor the free will offerings or heave offering of your hand. Now that's speaking to the nation in general once they took over the land. Obviously the ones who lived in Jerusalem <laughs> would eat within their gates, but most would not. Uh, and it even said that the inhabitants of Jerusalem stayed on their own housetops or in their yards or in the streets. But you must eat them before the eternal your God in the place which the eternal your God shall choose. Uh, you and your son and your daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, and the Levite that is within your gates, and you shall rejoice before the eternal your God in all that you put your hand unto. Take heed to yourself that you forsake not the Levite as long as you live upon the earth. When the eternal God shall enlarge your border, remember what it said about sea to sea? They had a small area to begin with, and now we have from sea to sea. God has expanded our border, as he has promised you. And you shall say, I will eat flesh, because your soul longs to eat flesh, you may eat flesh, whatsoever your soul desires. If the place which the eternal your God has chosen to put his name there be too far from you, we shall kill of your herd and your flock, which eternal has given you, as I have commanded you, and you shall eat in your gates whatsoever your soul desires. So they weren't to do it in their gates, but if the distance was too far and they simply could not get there by horse or by mule, if they lived in Kentucky or, or what's New Hampshire or whatever, and it was out here, uh, they might not have been able to. And in that case, they could do it at home. So there were only two places you could keep the feast, at home or in the place that God chose. We're in that area today. 22, even as the roebuck in the heart is eaten, so that you shall eat them, the unclean and the clean shall eat of them alike. Only be sure that you eat not the blood, says it again. For the blood is the life, and you may not eat the life with the flesh. God gave the life. It's a gift of God. No one can create life but God. Scientists try and they can't get the job done. Don't know how to do it. So it's respect to God and that which he has created. Uh, you shall not eat it, that it may go well with you and with, the ch with your children after you, when you shall do that which is right in the sight of the eternal. So it's a matter of respect to God and his creation that we don't eat the blood. It's not just that it's unhealthful, people might say. It is a matter of respect to the creator of life. And only if we respect the creator of life can we expect to be blessed in earth. 26. Only the holy things which you have in your vows you shall take and go to the place which the eternal shall choose. There, uh, and you shall offer your burnt offerings, the flesh, the blood upon the altar of the eternal your God, and the blood of your sacrifice shall be poured out upon the altar of the eternal your God, and you shall eat the flesh. Now, we don't do the animal sacrifices now, obviously, since Christ has become the sacrifice, but the attitude toward him uh, and toward his Father of ultimate and great respect must be there, more so than it was for the blood of bulls and goats. 
Observe and hear all these words which I command you that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever when you do that which is good and right in the sight of the Eternal your God. When the Eternal your God shall cut off the nations from before you where you go to possess them and you succeed them and dwell in the land, once you are blessed, take heed to yourself that you be not snared by following them after that they be destroyed from before you, and that you inquire not after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. We should not even have curiosity about the other religions of the world. We shouldn't listen to their preachers on the radio or the television or tapes or whatever. They're ungodly. They're satanic. They do not understand the way of God. And even though they may be transformed as angels of light, as Satan can be, there will be a twist and a wrong approach. And God says, don't go there. Don't even be curious about it. We think, well, it's just so sweet. And they say nice things, and they just talk about loving God. Do not be deceived. They do not know and understand the laws of God or the ways of God and you can be sucked in by that goo until you drown spiritually. Verse 31, you shall not do so to the eternal your God. For every abomination to the eternal which he hates have they done to their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. We don't throw them in an actual flame of fire. We just scoop their brains out before they ever come out of their mother's womb and kill them. They do things that we are instructed in the New Testament should not even really be spoken of. Homosexuality is rife in the movies of today. Violence, killing, murder is common in the movies of today. Every manner of sin, adultery and fornication is throughout the movies and TV shows of today. God says not to dwell on sin, to see no evil, to hear no evil, as Isaiah puts it. How do we justify going to violent, obscene, immoral movies? How can you do that in the light of what God says? The days of the sound of music are over, people. It doesn't exist anymore. Almost every movie that comes out, I suppose, is violence, murder, mayhem, thievery, fornication, adultery. Every sin that God condemns in his words, the movies are full of. And we go and pay money to see evil and violence and sin. And we wonder, why isn't God blessing us? We eat abominable poisons that man has concocted on purpose through the Edomite masters who hate Jacob to poison our bodies and kill us by what we eat. And then, if that doesn't get the job done, we go 
to their knives and drugs to finish the job. It is an abomination. When will we begin to look to God? And when we will when will we amend our ways? Some of you have probably been going to movies right here during the church and watching mayhem and violence, I mean during the feast. Sin and degradation of every kind. You can hardly turn on a TV show anymore without seeing somebody flipping around like Peter Pan. It's everywhere. Don't go there. Do we get it? Is this just so much spiritual sand in the air and then we just go out and do what we wish and eat what we wish? There is nothing at Burger King, McDonald's, Wendy's, In-N-Out, Carl's Jr., Name them all. There is nothing there that is worth putting in your body. It is poison. All of it is full of chemicals and poison. Designed to make them lots of money and to ruin our health so that Esau can triumph over Jacob here at the end. That's the bottom line in all this. They're dumbing us down in school. They're poisoning us. They're trying to kill us. And yet we keep going to our enemy for succor and food and comfort. When do we turn to God and do those things which he created to be good? That's what we have to concentrate on. He tells them, don't go the way of the world around you. Don't go the way of the nations around you. The New Testament is full of stories about not fellowshipping with the world, going the way of the world, worshipping their gods, and yet we still do it. I want God to bless us, brethren. I'm not angry. I just want us to stop killing ourselves. The slow suicide that we are going about in our lives. We need to stop it. And live. And live God's way. And be blessed by Almighty God. The book of Deuteronomy is so full of encouragement and direction and instruction to serve God and not man and the devil. No man can serve two masters. So get in or get out. Get on or get off. Because all you'll do if you try to serve two masters is confuse and frustrate yourself and the wrong master is going to win. We must commit ourselves entirely, totally and completely heart and soul to serve the eternal God in every way in our lives. Things that you think are just physical, no, they are not. They have everything to do with our attitude toward the great Creator who made the good things for us and Satan who has made the things to destroy us. 
There is a monumental spiritual battle going there over physical issues. Let's understand that. It does make a difference. I want us to be blessed above all people. I want us to go into the land. I want us to have eternal life. So, I think it's been a wonderful feast. We've had a lot of good times, family times, social times, fellowship together. A lot of people have served and given of themselves and made it pleasant for all of us. And I feel that God's blessing has been upon us. There's been cooperation and good spirit and attitude almost everywhere I've looked. So thank you for that. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being committed to God. And even though we encourage ourselves to push on and to become more so, we have been. So let's not castigate ourselves beyond measure, but let's keep working at overcoming and growing and doing better day by day and pleasing God more and more in the way that we go, and then we'll have less chastening and less trials and less troubles once he begins to smile upon us, which he promises he will do if we will turn with heart, mind, body, and soul. And he's going to bless the whole world once he humbles it. This whole world is going to have greater trial, trouble, tribulation, death, famine, and destruction until they are finally humbled. And then God can bless them in the millennium. The people that come up, pictured by this day, the last great day of the feast, will have gone through famine and pestilence and death from cancer, being blown to bits in war, disease, falling down wells, dying a thousand different ways. And they will come up physical cognizance and life and realize that whatever they were doing wasn't working out too well because they died. And now they'll say, what do I need to do? I don't want to go through that again. Let's fix this. They'll be humble. They'll be attentive. They'll be ready to listen for the most part. And the ones, the ones that aren't aren't going to receive any blessings that everybody else is getting until they begin to say, hey, wait a minute. Am I repeating that same old thing? I think I better straighten up. So God is only doing to you and me today in a lesser way what he is about to do to the whole world before the millennium and what has already been accomplished in the lives of the dead who are awaiting the second resurrection. We're not strange. We're not getting this put upon us more than anyone else. But to us it should have much deeper meaning because we know that it has to do with eternal life and blessing and the presence of God throughout all eternity. So we finished again the cycle of God's holy days from Christ beginning the whole thing through to the end of the second resurrection when the plan of God will have been finished and most people who have ever lived on the face of the earth, including most of Israel, Romans 11:26, will be in the kingdom of God. What a joyous time that will be. And we get to rehearse this whole plan every year. 
So we've completed the cycle again. Let's look forward to next spring and starting it all over. Because the plan of God and salvation for mankind is the most important thing that could ever be talked about. I hope you have those who are leaving a safe trip home. and I look forward to the day when we can all be together and be together to stay without having the goodbyes. And I don't like those. Uh, I like the welcomes a whole lot better than I do the goodbyes. So let's work toward resolving the goodbyes so that God can bring us together and keep us together to do his work.